morning, we're, we're talking on the topic of shame. The world's antipathy towards shame. The hatred of shame that the world has, that we all have. Because shame proceeds from feelings of guilt. And guilt comes from the fact that we're feeling that there's judgment. And in our culture, above all, we must never judge. Don't you judge me. And so since judgment leads to guilt, which leads to shame, then shame must never be tolerated. Because shame is the end result of everything that our culture rejects, which is judgment. And so our egos and our flesh respond to the repugnance of shame. Shame produces in us such a visceral feeling that we instinctively reject it in all forms. But is that right? Is all shame to be rejected? The title of the message this morning is, Not All Shame Is the Same. If we work that chain of feelings backwards, we can ask, Is it true that there is really no true right and wrong which should be judged? And is it true that there is never properly placed guilt? And is it therefore true that there is never a proper feeling of shame? Well, in fact, as we look at the words of the Bible that examines most closely the human heart, we find there is both improper and also proper shame. And as we continue in our series of leaning into discipleship, this morning what I want us to understand is that as disciples, we must be able to discern the difference between improper shame and proper shame. And it will go a long way towards sorting out our identity, how we feel, who we are, how we respond to others, and how we respond to our own feeling. If we don't understand improper shame from proper shame, then we'll make a lot of mistakes in our Christian walk. And we need to reject improper shame, but we need to rejoice improper shame. So, first of all, let's talk about improper shame and where it comes from. If you remember a few weeks ago, I talked about being wounded healers. And I talked about how sin affects all of us in three different ways. There's sort of three categories or three baskets that we can put the way sin affects us into. And the first two ways that sin affects us, or the first one is, is that we are affected by the sin of a fallen world. The world around us is not the way God intended, and so we are affected by that world. And we can summarize the improper shame that we feel from a fallen world simply as the shame of poverty. In other words, we're struck by illness, and so we have a poverty of health. Something like cancer or strokes or we have a poverty of finances or opportunity, a literal poverty, a financial systems around us, the economy around us and the the greed that has largely driven our current economy can go against us and put us in places of poverty or we could be in a poverty of standing or relationship. There are unjust political and social systems around us and the sin of the world puts us in a place of poverty And thus, that can cause us shame. We're embarrassed when we don't have the same amount of money as other people. We're embarrassed when our life circumstances are difficult. We're embarrassed that we suffer from a physical disability. We're embarrassed when we don't wear the coolest clothes on the first day of school. And so, we feel shame over things that are no fault of our own, but are the fault of a fallen world. And that is an improper shame, to be ashamed of our race, or our family history, or of our poverty, or our physical appearance, or anything like that. That's a shame of the fallen world, and it's improper to feel shame for that. In a similar way, the second way that sin affects us 
But in a more personal way is we can be affected by the sin of other people. They insult us or they belittle us because we're not wearing the coolest clothes. We are expected to sit at a different place. You know, the the writer James talks about this in the church where the church was actually giving priority to the more wealthy members of the church and less attention to the less wealthy members of the church. And he rebukes the church to say, you are shaming these people and honoring these people for all the wrong reasons. But people can also do violence against us. They can abuse us. They can do sinful things to us. Or we can just be caught in an environment where people are doing sinful things around us and we get sucked into the shame of their sin against us or their sin in our family or in our environment or in our culture. And the shame of the sin of others can make many of us feel like we should be ashamed ourselves because we're a part of it. We were caught up in their sin, or they sinned against us and made us an object of shame. Both of those are improper shames. It's improper shame if it stems from something that doesn't dishonor God, but is simply a matter of our circumstances that result from nature, from the fallen condition of this world, or even the sinful actions of others that bring dishonor to God. And you do not. But many of us feel that improper shame, don't we? We feel ashamed when we've been sinned against, when we're the object of shameful behavior. We feel shame when we don't keep up with other people or when we are in circumstances that are disagreeable to others. The Bible has examples of shame that comes from natural results. Moses felt shame and incompetence because of his speech impediment or his lack of eloquence in Exodus 4. The servant of God described in Isaiah, who we know prophetically as Jesus, we are told was despised even for his physical appearance. I mean, he just wasn't a good-looking guy. And people just looked on him like he was lesser because of his appearance. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The disciples were tempted to feel shame because of their suffering and imprisonment as a result of their faith. Peter's addressing improper shame and replacing it with rejoicing when he writes in 1 Peter 4, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So, There is shame that just comes upon us from outside. We also have biblical examples of shame resulting from the sinful actions of others towards us. One that we spoke on a year or so ago is the shame of Tamar, the daughter of David. Shame over her violation. 2 Samuel 13, 12 says, She answered him, Amon, who abused her. She said, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where would I take my shame? And then after the assault, she says, it reads, And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. See, the shame she felt over being sinned against. Far too often, even as disciples of Jesus Christ, our shame comes from our circumstances in the world, the nature of our birth, our race, our family, the culture around us we have no control over, or even what other people have done to us. And the Bible says, don't feel shame over something that does not dishonor God. Who you are, what the world or others have done to you, is not a cause of proper shame. And that has implications for us as disciples individually, and it has implications for us as a church family together. 
Both of those shames personally as disciples have a tremendous impact on our identity. So many disciples of Jesus are bound by this improper shame of what the world or others have done to them. And that shame, that false identity that we bear must be taken to Jesus and laid down his cross and we pick up our new identity in him. And Mr. Wilson in the book that we're studying covers this personal level of shame in great depth and how we must put it away and take on the identity of Christ. So I'm not going to elaborate on that too much because it's in the book and it'll be in your group. Other than to encourage you to be discerning and thorough in examining your own heart by your actions which will tell you if you're really living in your identity in Jesus and not still living in your identity in the flesh. And what I mean by that is I know disciples, I know brothers and sisters in Christ who know their identity in Jesus, but the way they talk, the way they stand, the way they look, the way they act, the way they respond to people around them, screams out that they're still living in the shame of their fleshly identity and not their identity in Jesus. And so as you're reading the chapter, as you're in your small group, examine your heart and ask yourself, am I really living in the confidence of Jesus Christ or am I living in the shame of what other people think of me or even in the shame of what I think of myself? That'll be your homework. Must not live in our past. The Apostle Paul who confesses his weakness over and over and over again, he suffered imprisonment and beatings and countless reasons to be ashamed, especially ashamed by his crowd of Pharisees who have rejected him. He says in Philippians, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, the goal, the prize, the upward call of Jesus Christ. Paul knows he's got lots to be ashamed about. He beat and imprisoned, possibly sent Christians to their death. Tons of stuff he could be ashamed about, even before God. He says, I don't live there. My identity is in Christ, and I'm striving towards that identity and the upward call of Christ to come. But I'll let Mr. Wilson dig deeper into the personal implications for us. I want us to acknowledge the implication of this improper shame for us as a church, as disciples together. What it... What this improper shame means for us and how we need to handle it rightly and identify it truly. And here's where we need to be honest, really, and and possibly confess that across the board, the identity of churches in North America have perhaps a bad reputation. I hope not too much here at Lakeside. But in general, churches have made mistakes when it comes to improper shame. And what I mean is... Too often, and even once is too often, a church or people who are in a church have made people who come feel ashamed because of what has been done to them or because of the circumstances of the lifestyle and the people around them. And that's improper for us to do. We don't contribute to improper shame, making people feel ashamed of the circumstances of their life or the history that they've come through. In Jesus' time, it was the Pharisees and the religious people that rejected the crippled and those with leprosy and those that suffered under oppression and even those that were poor. They looked down their noses at them because of the crowd that they kept, you know, hanging out with those publicans and those tax collectors and those sinners. Or because of the condition of their life obviously indicated they were disfavored by God. It's, you know, they can't be a good Christian if that's what's going on in their life. 
That was Jesus' day. Today, again, I don't believe it's prevalent here at Lakeside, but the wider North American church can be accused of having very little pity and very little mercy and of actually increasing the shame of those who suffer, perhaps from mental illness or being in bondage to addiction, who have children out of wedlock, either out of abuse or even just because of the pressure and the power of forces around them. We can as a church, we can as Christians... If we're honest, be caught blaming the victim and believing that it is somehow our job to join God in judging sin. And here's the problem. We're not God. We don't know perfectly the way God knows perfectly. We don't know what circumstances, what sins of the world, what sins of others, what powers and forces have been at work in these other people's lives We will never be perfect judges, and it is not for us to judge, because we're not God. And so as a church, we have to be very, very, very careful as brothers and sisters in Christ in taking a stance that ever increases the shame or treating others or the shame of others who are in more difficult circumstances than ourselves. Here's the reality of improper shame. The Bible is intolerant of it, and it is intolerant of any identity for a disciple apart from their identity in Christ. It's intolerant of any identity for another human being that is apart from their identity as being made in the image of God. And as such, as a church, we have to reflect that same intolerance. Intolerance towards victim blaming. Intolerance towards despising anyone for the circumstances of their life, their family, their body, their ability, their lack of ability, their ethnicity, their heritage, what's been done to them, anything in their past. The church is meant to be as intolerant as the Bible is of improper shame. And so that's... The implication of improper shame to us as a church. Are we going to recognize it? Are we going to identify it and set people free from it? Rather than increasing their burden by participating in it. We must never, as a church, make people feel ashamed for improper reasons. Now I said not all shame is the same. Why do we have shame at all if it's only an emotion of the fallen flesh? If there's no place for shame in the life of a disciple, is that true? Well, not exactly. Remember, there's a third way that sin impacts our life. It's not just a fallen world that sin impacts us by. It's not just the sin of others that impacts us. What's the third one? Obviously, we sin. It's the sin we least like to talk about. It's the sin of our own hearts. It's the sin of our own words. And our actions towards others are sinful. We don't like talking about that one. We don't mind talking about being wounded people. We don't mind talking about being a broken people. But it's harder to talk about this one when we admit that we are a sinful people ourselves. We're not only broken and we're not only wounded. We also are breakers and wounders because we sin. So then when we sin, when we acknowledge our sin, we rightly feel a proper shame over our sin. And as disciples... Just as we have to learn how to deal with improper shame in our life and care for people who are suffering from improper shame, we also have to learn how the proper shame that God causes us to feel is meant to operate correctly in our lives. For a disciple, 
And even for an unbeliever who is seeking after God, shame is a gift that is meant to lead us to forgiveness and to rejoicing. There is a role for proper shame. All people are given a conscience by God that their own heart can accuse or excuse them. Romans 2.14 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law, Paul says. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So Paul uses the term Gentiles here. He's referring to people outside of the law, people outside of God. He says we don't need the law to know when we are sinning. Very often, people who are beginning to seek God, you hear the testimony of those who came to Jesus from a very desperate past and a desperate history. You quite often hear in their testimony that they kind of woke up one day and realized, I'm not a good person. What I'm doing is evil. I am destroying others and destroying myself. And their conscience speaks to them and says, hey, there actually is right and wrong in the world. There actually is evil and good. And they start trying to figure out where this comes from. Because why would I accuse myself in my own mind of what I was doing being bad? It has to come from somewhere else. I mean, I would never tell myself I'm being bad. And they look into the Bible. They start looking at religion. They maybe look into the Bible. And their conscience leads them to guilt and to shame. And they start to figure out, well, what do I do about this? What do I do if I'm guilty? This is the question of all mankind. What do we do with our guilt? we got to do something with it. can't just pretend it doesn't exist. It can't just be hand-waved away. And shame operates even in unbelievers to lead them to the mercy of God and to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of that guilt because it has been dealt with. Praise God. It's been dealt with by Jesus Christ on the cross. So, of course, then, even in believers, in disciples, we should comprehend even more fully the proper use that the Holy Spirit makes of shame in our lives. And in the church, as we follow Jesus together, we should understand how proper shame is meant to be used in the life of disciples individually and together. The proper sense of shame, or you could insert the word guilt here, in this case, it's equivalent in this context... The proper sense of shame or guilt that we feel over our sin is the early warning system of our conscience. It's the early warning system of our spirit. As I've mentioned before, on and off again, I, I started running. I was a bit, I won't even call it running, that's an exaggeration. I became a jogger um, or a trudger um, when I was about 40. And lately it's been more off again than on again because as any proper athletes out there will tell you, eventually you get hurt. When I run, if I run improperly, if I don't run with almost perfect form, my left knee gets injured. And the pain that I start to feel on the very first hill that I descend improperly is the early warning that I am running wrong. And if I don't correct my running and I just keep running despite the pain it'll get worse and if I insist on running poorly and ignoring the pain then eventually I'm hobbled and I'm reduced to a limp and what I need to do when I feel that pain is repent of my foolish approach to running improve my form and run properly and the pain is what tells my body to do that well shame is a disciple's pain It's our grief that warns us that we are running wrong and that we need to repent and run right. 
Let's look at this function of shame in operation in the lives of our favorite dysfunctional disciples, the Christians in the church of Corinth. I just feel bad about Corinth. Who, what rejoicing there will be for the Corinthians Christians in heaven when the past is forgotten. Because we just keep dredging it up over and over again, those Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He's writing in his second letter, 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 7, and he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. So what the Apostle Paul is referring to here is a series of rebukes that he had to write to the church in Corinth. Because many of these disciples were running their Christian life very wrongly. There is incest that we read about. There were people taking each other to court and settling lawsuits in civil, with civil magistrates. There were arguments about spiritual gifts and who followed who and what was the right way to do just about everything. There was favoritism between the rich and the poor. There was an abuse of communion and the Lord's Supper. It's a long, long list of the problems of the people in Corinth running wrongly. But in short, there was a significant amount of sin surfacing among these disciples. And after Paul's letter to them, they were feeling grieved, he says. They were feeling guilty. They were feeling ashamed. And Paul says, I don't regret it. Well, he admits that he actually did feel badly about it for a short time. But he says, I don't really regret it, though, because the shame that you felt, the grief that you felt, led you to repentance. It was a godly kind of shame. It produced repentance and led to salvation without regrets. Boy, we could preach a whole sermon just on regrets and how the, the sin that we regret and would desire no other disciple experience. And Paul says, I'm not, I don't feel bad that I made you feel bad. I'm glad you felt shame because it's led you to repentance and so there won't be more regret <laughs> if you continue the way you are. If I keep running the way I run, it leads to more regret over my knee. Paul says, look what earnestness this has produced in you. And Paul sees that the church is now striving to put their shame behind them, and they're now striving to run rightly with Jesus. But in contrast to that proper shame and that proper grief, which he actually exposed and augmented on purpose to cause for them, in contrast, Paul says worldly grief, or we could say shame apart from the power of the gospel, shame that just we take on in the world on our own shoulders, only leads to death. In other words, unless our shame leads us out of the world and back to the Father and to Jesus and to the gospel and to repentance, then it doesn't produce joy or rejoicing. In fact, it produces depression and anger and resentment and regret and finally spiritual death. If we suffer the shame of the world apart from the gospel, it leads us to despair. 
Shame is meant to operate properly, but it's also meant to operate only temporarily in the life of a disciple. Notice how Paul refers to the shame or the grief caused by his letter. He says, I see it grieved you, but only for a little while. So there's a time element we have to understand as disciples. As we're wrestling with how do I deal with proper shame. Proper shame is when I have sinned. I've brought dishonor to God. It's the early warning system that says you are running wrongly. You need to get this fixed or it's going to lead to death. So that's proper shame operating correctly. But proper shame operates correctly. We also see when there's a proper time element to it. Paul says, I see it grieved you, but only for a little while. There is a limit to proper shame operating as intended in a disciple. As one writer observed, Christian shame is a drive-through, not a parking space. As disciples, we don't wallow in our shame. We don't dwell on our shame. We don't continually rehearse and revisit our shame over and over and over again in our mind. Our shame is, in fact, a gift of God to warn us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and by repentance, getting running rightly quickly again. And we can also notice that this is how shame is applied properly in the context of the church. I'm talking originally there individually how shame is our early warning system and we should use it very briefly, quickly to get us running rightly again. But we also have to consider how we as a whole church together use shame as it's been properly intended. Of course we can feel our own shame personally and privately and repent quickly. And that's how it works. But in this example... We also see how shame is being applied properly in the life of the whole church. This is not the diary of an individual Christian who has had the Holy Spirit grieve them personally before God for their sin. This is the rebuke of an elder, an apostle, a leader of a church to a whole body. And we can see that shame is used properly even in the church context. Just as the church must be adamantly intolerant of improper shame, the church must, at the same time, embrace fully and carefully the proper use of shame for disciples who are called to hold one another accountable. Because we're not only accountable to our own private consciences. As much as we would love that to be true as Christians, we just wish that this could just be a private affair and that our sin never affects anybody else. But there is nothing in Scripture in the New Testament church that would indicate that that is true. We are a body of believers and we live out our lives together. And so it is never simply our own private consciences in which we deal with sin. We are accountable to the brothers and sisters that we share our lives with in the church. Now, does that mean that we are going to be dragging everyone up on stage on a weekly basis to confront their shameful deeds? No. I've been here eight years now, and I've never seen us do that. Have you ever seen us do that? No, we've never done that. And I'm pretty sure that they didn't do it for the 20 or 30 or 50 or 112 years prior to this either. But it also doesn't mean... That as disciples who are committed to this body, that you will never be approached. That you will never be spoken to. That you will never be taken aside and said, as Paul says to people at Corinth, Hey, this isn't right. This is not proper. You need to start running rightly again. Let me guide you back to the center of the path. Let me fix your form a little bit so that you can run in a way that does not dishonor God and harm and wound and break others. There may be a time in your own past that you can think of right now when someone in the church has taken you aside 
Maybe it was in a small group. Maybe it was an elder. Maybe it was a pastor. Whatever. They took you aside and your flesh immediately rebelled. How dare you judge me? But if you were really sinning, if you were really out of bounds, then that's proper shame working as intended and being applied properly in the church. We are meant to bring each other back in bounds. We are meant to fix each other's style. We are meant to bring each other back from the edge of the ditches on either side of the path. One of the things about the shame that church produces sometimes, and we have to be careful of this as disciples, is when we're feeling proper shame, quite often it isn't the church. It's not anything I preach on. It's not anybody, anything anybody says in the lobby. It's just when you walk in the door, you feel ashamed for your life and whatever's been going on. And we don't have any control over that. That's the Holy Spirit doing that. I have lots of people who tell me they can't come to church because they're going to get struck by lightning or something. You know, or I don't like going to church because, you know, all those people who are judging me. It's like people don't even know you. They're not judging you. If you feel judged, that may be you. And that's true of disciples too. We know our past better than others. And so we can come to church and feel, I can't believe this judgmental church is judging me. Look at them looking at me sideways. And they're just thinking, that's a really nice sweater. (laughs) So as disciples, we have to understand how proper shame works in the church. And understand, especially here at Lakeside, I hope this is true. You can tell me if it's not. We are not out to put any more burden of shame on anybody. Especially improper shame. We're intolerant of that. But in terms of proper shame, there may be times when a brother or sister will come alongside you, and it may be spoken about, and you may have to feel the pangs of shame and guilt in order to know that the way you've been running is not right, and you need to get back in bounds, back on the path, and hit your stride again. And when that happens, or if that has happened to you, the Bible would expect of us as disciples to ask ourselves, wasn't that fair? Isn't this both the church and shame working as God intended them both to work properly? Shame is the pain that warns me of sin, and my church family is the most loving place for me to have my sin diagnosed and dealt with. Isn't it right of my brothers and sisters to lead me into godly grief? That it might lead to rejoice and repenting. And that right there is the test of the shame we experience. Is how does it end? Does it end in repentance and rejoicing? Is it a shame that can lead us to repent and rejoice? I can't repent of the way I look. I'm just this ugly. And so I shouldn't feel ashamed of the fact that I look the way I look. Because I can't repent of it, and I can't really rejoice in it. That's an improper shame. I just ignore it. But I can repent of the way I speak. I can repent of the action I take towards my family or towards you. And if I have experienced proper shame, I should feel that. And then I should repent of it because I have brought dishonor to God and wounded others. And if I can repent of that, then I can rejoice that I felt the shame because it led me to repentance. You see how it works? Let's look at that conclusion. We read this together, but we'll just unpack it. Psalm 32. This is King David who writes this psalm that we read. And you know King David, right? The guy who outright broke most of the Ten Commandments and badly bent the rest of them. The adulterous murderer, who after being an adulterous murderer, also stood powerlessly by, even as he was the king in his own palace and allowed a culture of abuse to pervade his family. That King David that allowed Amnon to abuse Tamar and never dealt with it. 
That king rejoices in the gift that shame leads to repentance. Even in the Old Testament, remember, law and grace, it was always in operation. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Yeah, godly grief. Shame, despair. But I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Amen. King David, he felt it. He felt the shame. He went to temple, right? He took his offering up the mountain, and he went there, and he felt the shame. Didn't even want to show his face day and night. His body groaned under it. That is shame apart from the gospel. That's shame apart from grace and mercy. But he says, I'm not going to live my life that way. I'm going to confess it. I'm going to let the pain of my shame lead me to confession and repentance and ultimately rejoicing. It's how it worked in the church in Corinth. It's how it worked, what, a thousand years earlier with King David. Hebrews 12 says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus went to the cross not only for our sin, he went to the cross for our shame. He took on the shame so that we need never feel shame either improper because of the sins of the world or because of the sins of those against us, nor even proper shame of our own sin because we can repent of it and be forgiven and rejoice in that forgiveness because Jesus has taken sin and shame to the cross. So then as disciples, live out what is true of your identity in Christ. Do not, as disciples, permit improper shame to define your identity or your life. God has called us to be free of both sin and shame, and Christ has died for that. God has promised and proven that the work of Christ on the cross is sufficient, and so live in the new identity that is yours. Live as though that is true. And as a church, we will not tolerate improper shaming of those who are wounded by the sin of the world or are wounded by others. Rather, we will be a church that heals the wound that leads to that shame. But at the same time, we will not justify or excuse personal sin that rightly causes shame. Instead, as a church, I hope gently and with love, we will rejoice when shame illuminates sin and brings a disciple to repentance and celebrate the goodness of God to both expose and to forgive a repentant sinner of their sins. You see, shame should always, for disciples, lead us to rejoicing. Improper shame will cause us as disciples to lean into the healing of those old wounds and by the grace of God take it to the cross and then rejoice in our identity in Christ. That's what we do with improper shame. We say, I'm not that, I am this. Proper shame will cause us to lean into repentance and forgiveness by the grace of God and then rejoice in our forgiveness and salvation. Either way, we take our shame to the cross 
and we end in rejoicing. The disciples' answer to shame always ends in rejoicing if we are able to diagnose and treat the shame biblically. Now we're coming into communion, and there is almost, I can't imagine, a better time for dealing with our shame and examining our lives and asking ourselves as disciples, is this a proper shame I am allowing to hold me in bondage? Am am I bound to an improper shame? Am I living in an identity because of something somebody else has done to me? Or because of some sin against me, either poverty or pride of others, mocking me, making fun of me, my own pride because of, you know, my disadvantage towards other people around me? You need to take that and say, that is improper shame. That is not my identity. My identity is in Christ. Communion is a great time to do that. Or maybe you look at your heart and you say, I'm not running right. I'm feeling this pain. I'm feeling this shame because I've acted shamefully. And God says, yeah, you have. But I've got an answer for that. Again, Jesus, communion's a great time. Get that sorted out. So just as we enter into communion now, and uh, we take these elements together as those that know Jesus Christ, I just want you to meditate for a bit. I'm just going to pray, and we're just going to meditate. I think the music team's going to come up, and they're going to play for communion. And we're just going to meditate on this issue of shame. And I want you to deal with that shame before you come to the Lord's Supper. Let me just read why we remember this. Luke 22. And when the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That's the key. This is the new covenant. This is the new deal. This meal means we can bring all of our sin and all of our shame to Christ. And he has done everything on that cross that's required of us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you give us illustrations in your word and an understanding of both improper and proper shame. Help us learn as disciples that this is crucial to our identity in you and crucial to our handling of these feelings of guilt in our life, that we reject the wrong ones and we embrace and rejoice in the right ones. And teach us these things this week, even as we talk together in our life groups, Lord. And right now, Lord, I just pray for this meal that we take with you as your disciples, that we can right now in our own hearts be examining ourselves that we can be rejecting any improper shame, any improper identity. But at the same time, we can acknowledge proper guilt and proper shame, but with joy. Because simply by confessing it, by turning from it, by putting all of our hope in you, you wash us whiter than snow. So there's no longer any need to be ashamed. Because we are forgiven by your grace and mercy and by the work of Christ on the cross. We thank you for this, that we get to remember it today in Christ's name. Amen.